Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Matthew 24, 19-31 Speaking of the final days of history as we know it, Jesus says, How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath, for then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, Do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. See, I have told you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you, there he is, out in the desert, do not go out. Or here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time... The sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. And our second reading is from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, uh, which is page 1189 in your Bibles. Two Thessalonians chapter 2, 1 to 12. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, We ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report, or letter supposed to have come from us, saying that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction." He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? And now you know what is holding him back, so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. But the one who now holds it back will continue to do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth 
and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. Tim, thank you very much indeed and good morning uh, everybody. It's uh, lovely to be with you. Please keep that Bible reading open in front of you as we look at it. We're looking through 2 Thessalonians um, in this lead up to Easter and um, uh, you might also find it helpful to dig out uh, this uh, handout, this um, uh, sermon outline so you can see where we're going. Am I, am I on? Am I coming and going? Or is this all working? It's all working. Fantastic. Well, Andy has uh, prayed for us, so let's dive straight in. Just imagine living your whole life for Jesus. Well, I hope you don't have to imagine that. I hope you're doing that. But imagine living your whole life for Jesus, sacrificially giving yourself, uh, giving up time and money for Jesus, changing your ambitions, your whole life being lived for him, all in the belief that when he returns, you'll have a better future in the glorious promised land of the new heavens and the new earth. But then, when he returns, when he comes back, the future life you've been promised is no better, no different from life here and now. Now that is what the Thessalonian Christians were trying to come to terms with. Do you remember chapter 2, verse 2? They'd received a report that Jesus had already come back. But chapter 1, verse 4, they were still being persecuted. Jesus had supposedly returned, but life wasn't any different. And so, verse 2 of chapter 2, it had left them unsettled and alarmed. Well, I bet it had. Look, I love life, and I I love living in forward, but if this is the promised land, if this is as good as it gets, if eternity is no better than this, what a disappointment. Because as good as it gets here, and frankly, life doesn't get much better than forward in the spring, but as good as it gets here we still have to live with all the dreadful Ds, as I call them. We have to live with disease. We still get ill. I've had um, labyrinthitis for the last few weeks. It's not the worst thing in the world. I don't need any sympathy. But it's taken a lot of fun out of life. Disease and disappointment. Often life doesn't quite deliver. Uh, People let us down. Situations don't turn out as we hoped. Disease, disappointment, disgruntlement. People tell me they're not happy with me. I I let people down. I know I do, and it it weighs heavy on me. Disease, disappointment, disgruntlement, distress. From the daily pressure of having to make ends meet and pay the bills, to worrying about the family in the future, to the stress of my own sin and failure each day. Disease, disappointment, disgruntlement, distress, and then the ultimate agony, death. And on this Mothering Sunday, some of us feel that really acutely see it doesn't matter how good life is now these other things and death always has the last word eventually like an unwelcome gate crasher it barges his way in and ruins the party of life as good as life is we can't escape the dreadful d's and so if this is the promised land if one day i discover that my eternal future isn't going to be any better than this then I'll be like the Thessalonians in verse 2, unsettled and alarmed. And look, if that's how I feel, no wonder they felt it. We have it good here. They were being persecuted. They were suffering for being Christians. And it was the hope of a better future that had kept them going. 
They long for Jesus to return and make life better. But chapter 2, verse 2, they'd now received this letter or, or report announcing that Jesus Christ had returned to this earth, but nothing had changed. They were still suffering. Evil was still present. And they'd not been gathered to Jesus to be get, kept safe for all eternity. So they were thrown into a complete spin. Now, this letter that purportedly had come from the Apostle Paul was, of course, full of fake news. It was false teaching from false teachers. And no wonder the Thessalonians were confused. And so Paul says, first point on the handout, don't be alarmed, know the truth. See, it is quite understandable that they were confused, unsettled, as Paul puts it in verse two. Now, literally, that word unsettled means to be shaken in your mind, what they believed in their minds. They believed Jesus was going to return and and make it all better. What they believed in their minds hadn't materialized. And verse two, they were alarmed, literally shaken in heart, what we might say rattled. Their heart's desire, the return of Jesus, had come to nothing. A few weeks back, um, floodwaters in part of North Yorkshire were rising to worrying levels. Do you remember seeing the reports on the TV? And there was the television news reporter with fast-flowing river behind her, uh, battering down, and there was a little boat tied up on the side of the river. No doubt the, the boat had taken a pounding by the floodwaters, but it hadn't moved. It was still tied to its moorings. Well, look, this chapter helps us to remain tied to our biblical moorings. False teaching may, may, may well make us feel battered and, and feel unsettled and alarmed, but if we know the Bible, we won't be moved by false teaching. We won't be swept away. So Paul assured the Thessalonians that this prophecy, this report or letter spreading the rumour of Christ's return hadn't come from him. It wasn't apostolic. It wasn't biblical. He says, verse 3, don't let anyone deceive you. In verse 5 he writes, remember my teaching. That's the key for us, to remember the teaching of the apostles. That's how we stand firm. Let's look how Paul ends this letter. Turn with me to chapter 3 and verse 17. You might well have read this, uh, this book before and wondered why he ends it the way he does. Look at verse 17 of chapter 3. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand, which is the distinguishing mark in all my letters. This is how I write. See, he says, I always end my letters by signing them personally. Now, that's how you know that this one, two Thessalonians, is from me. And that's how you know that the other one purporting to be from me isn't from me because I didn't sign it. For us, if we're going to stand firm when false teaching comes, if we're going to avoid being shaken in our faith, we must know and stick to the true apostolic biblical gospel. Don't be alarmed, know the truth. Secondly, don't be surprised, know the facts. And we're thinking here particularly about the facts of Jesus' return. So Paul writes in verse 3, This is verse three of chapter two. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. As Paul began to write and as we look at the details of these verses which are notoriously difficult, um, let's not lose sight of of the big point. Very simply, Paul says, you know, you'll know when Christ returns, it'll be obvious He won't slip in unannounced. When Jesus comes, it will be the end of all evil and all rebellion against God. That is Paul's big point in these verses. What a terrific thought. All the dreadful deeds done away with. 
No more disease or disappointment. No more disgruntlement or distress. And no more death. But, he says, before that day, before Christ returns, two things must happen. Verse three, the great rebellion will take place and the man of lawlessness will arrive. First, the arrival of the man of lawlessness. Now look, this chapter isn't easy. People have very different opinions on all the details. The Bible scholar Leon Morris believes that uh, these verses are amongst the most difficult that Paul wrote. So we do well not to be too dogmatic. But for what it's worth, I reckon the man of lawlessness is Satan. Look how he's described. End of verse three, he is the one doomed to destruction. He's hostile to the law and rule of God. So he is, verse three, the man of lawlessness. And verse four, he stands opposed to and against God's law. And verse four, he will oppose God and set himself up as God. Now I reckon that all points to Satan, the man of lawlessness. And second in verse three, the rebellion. As Paul wrote this letter around AD 50, the great rebellion had not taken place and the man of lawlessness had not been revealed. That is Paul's point. He's saying Christ couldn't have returned because these things have to happen. So these words were deeply reassuring for the Thessalonians. It told them the report um, that they'd received was wrong. The report that Jesus returned, that's wrong. That the glorious day of Christ was yet to come, he says. This was not all there was to life. So these words were greatly reassuring for the Thessalonians. But for us in the 21st century, as we look at these verses, there is a danger, and it is this. Jesus taught that no one knows the day or the hour of his return. Jesus taught us to live as if it could be today. So we must not read this in such a way that leaves us convinced that Jesus couldn't return today. We mustn't read this saying, well, the rebellion hasn't happened and so we haven't seen the man of lawlessness and so Jesus' return is still some time off. That would be a very helpful, unhelpful conclusion. And I think a key verse to help us from going astray here is verse seven. The secret power of lawlessness is already at work. That helps us to see this is not all future It was already happening back in the first century and so we can be sure that the secret power of lawlessness is at work today. And if we'll open our spiritual eyes, we can see it in the world around us. Lawlessness, being against God's law, it's everywhere in our society. It's rampant today in the postmodern mindset that insists that there are no moral absolutes. You have your truth, I have mine. I have no right to tell you how to, how to live. You have no right to tell me how, how to live. There is no ultimate law, no law of God. It's uh, there in secular humanism. There is no higher power to tell me how to live. I'll make up the rules. It's there in the totalitarian tendencies in extreme left-wing or extreme right-wing ideologies. Any rejection of God's law comes from the secret power of lawlessness, Satan at work in the world. And we see it in the social permissiveness running right through our society. The belief that anything goes and I'll decide what's right and wrong. That is a blatant disregard for God's law. Look, just think how the Ten Commandments are so ignored in the world today. Honour your father and mother, that's a good one for today. I was talking to someone earlier this week and describing his experience in a school, he said the children were feral. They can't be controlled at school because they're out of control at home. Children don't respect or honour their parents. 
on this Mother's Day. Many mums know the, the pain of the lack of respect from children. You shall not murder. Knife crime is on the rise. 17-year-old Jodie Chesney is minding her own business in a park in Harold Hill in East London and she's stabbed to death in an unprovoked attack. You shall not commit adultery. Too many marriages are wrecked because of uh, infidelity. Sex is sold openly. A blind eye is turned to prostitution just to click on the computer screen and it's in your home. What about the Eighth Commandment? You shall not steal. Credit card fraud, identity theft, banking scams, not to mention good old-fashioned burglary, that's still there. And you shall not bear false testimony. We don't feel that we can trust our politicians. In any business transaction, we're nervous that someone is pulling a fast one. And then there's the Tenth Commandment, covetousness, of course, the one that none of us think we do, but who hasn't been seduced by the power of advertising that leaves us wanting what isn't ours and buying what we cannot afford. Society as a whole has a total disregard for God's law. So verse 7, the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. There is a mighty power all around us that is against God's law. It was happening then and it's happening now. And there will come a day when the man of lawlessness will, verse 4, oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God and is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. There will be a great rebellion. A day when there is lawlessness not just out there in the world but you see it there in verse 4 in God's temple. Now again, these are difficult verses and there are different views on this, but here's my best thought. For Christians, God's temple is not a building in Jerusalem, but the church of Jesus Christ. I don't by that mean any building, but the people of God. So let me ask you, can you imagine a day when there is total disregard for God's law, even in the church? Well, of course you can, because the secret power of lawlessness is already at work in the church today. Most obviously and most blatantly, it's happening throughout the Anglican church over human sexuality. God's law is very clear that marriage is to be between one man and one woman for life, but many church leaders refuse to obey God's law. They are lawless. They approve of and promote those who deny God's law in this area of human sexuality. So right now we can see the man of lawlessness opposing God's law, verse 4, exalting himself over God and setting himself up as God, even end of verse 4, in God's temple, in the church. Now look, as I say all this, I am not categorically declaring that the rebellion has come. I'm not categorically saying that the man of lawlessness has set himself up in God's temple. What I am saying is that we are seeing these things here and now, and then maybe, just maybe, we don't realise how bad it's become. I cleaned the windows in the house this week. It's uh, worthy of note because it doesn't happen very often. And um, every time that I've looked through the windows since, I've uh, rejoiced in how clean they are because it was a long time since I'd cleaned them before and they were very dirty. And the muck had built up on the windows, so gradually I hadn't noticed just how filthy they were. In the same way, society and even in the church, it has become so dirty we don't even notice it. We've got used to the filth. 
a few years back, it was a few years back now, India, India Night wrote an article in the Times about the appalling standard of television in Britain. She wasn't complaining that the scripts weren't very good, you understand. She was appalled at the lifting of restrictions on what can be shown on the television before nine o'clock. And when I read the article, I found myself deeply challenged because it took someone who doesn't claim to be a Christian to make me wake up to the fact that television has become so dirty. It chastened me that I'm not outraged by the language, the sex, the violence and the general immorality in my living room. There's been a gradual erosion. The dirt on the television has built up so gradually that I've got used to it and I don't notice how bad it is. And that's true right through society. So maybe, just maybe, maybe we're, we're in the rebellion. Maybe we don't have to wait for that day that is to come. It's already here. On the other hand, on the other hand, it might be that we have yet to see how bad it will become. There is a greater rebellion. It will get even worse. Uh, we might well witness a most catastrophic and terrifying breakdown of world order. Well, whatever you make of all that, uh, what we do know is that when Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, verses three and four hadn't happened. The man of lawlessness had not been revealed. The great rebellion hadn't occurred. And the reason, there was one restraining the man of lawlessness. Look at verse five. Don't you remember that when I was with you, writes Paul, I used to tell you these things, and now you know what is holding him, that is the man of lawlessness, back so that he may be revealed at the proper time. Well, sadly, we don't know what Paul used to tell them, so we don't know who is holding back the man of lawlessness. Again, people have different views on this verse. For what it's worth, I think the one restraining the man of lawlessness is God himself. We can thank God that he controls the crazed dog Satan and stops him from doing his worst. We can thank God that one day he will take Satan out completely. Look at verse 7. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who holds it back will continue to do so until he, I think that is until, um, until Satan is taken out of the way. And then the, lawlessness, the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and, the, and destroy by the power, by the splendor of his coming. There will come a day when we will see all the wickedness of the evil one in all its horribleness. Verse eight, the lawlessness, the lawless one will be revealed. But on that day, second half of verse eight, the Lord Jesus will overthrow him with the breath of his mouth. This is Paul's big point. When Jesus returns, he will destroy the work of the lawless one. That's what the Thessalonians needed to know. When Jesus returns, all lawlessness will end. The devil will be thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, as it says in Revelation chapter 20. Verse eight is wonderfully reassuring. We can't stop the work of the evil one. The United Nations can't stop the war in Syria. The authorities can't control pornography on the internet. The police can't stop crime. We can't even control ourselves. Satan's work is very powerful. And yet, verse eight, Jesus Christ with just a breath of his mouth, will blow him away. Jesus Christ is so powerful that the worst rebellion Satan can throw against Almighty God, the worst disobedience, the most deep-rooted licentiousness, the darkest, most evil expression of rebellion against God, all of it blown away by the breath of his mouth. 
That is the power of Jesus Christ. And so when he returns, chaos will end instantly. The man of lawlessness will be overthrown. End of verse eight, destroyed by the splendor of Jesus' coming. So for the Thessalonians, this was deeply reassuring. reassuring. The Lord Jesus had not yet come as they'd been led to believe. And it was deeply reassuring. When he does come, it will be the end of rebellion and lawlessness. Don't be alarmed. Know the truth. Don't be surprised. Know the facts. And thirdly, and much more briefly over the page, don't be fooled. Love the word, verses 9 to 12. See, finally, in this section of Paul's letter, Paul says, until the day of the Lord's return, we must stand firm in the truth because Satan will try to deceive us and try to make us people who rebel against God and his law. Look at verse nine. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs and wonders and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. The man of lawlessness, Satan, is a deceiver. And tragically, many are taken in by satanic deception. Not because they are stupid, not because they are half-wits, but because the deception is so very good. You see, Satan's deceptions look like the works of Jesus Christ. Verse 9, miracles, signs, and wonders. And many people are duped when they see the miracles of the evil one, thinking that they are the miracles of Jesus. Every few years, it seems, a new supernatural phenomena seems to rush its way through the church. And people blindly chase after the miracle. They say, it's a miracle, it must be of God. How else do you explain it? Well, here's how else do you explain it. Counterfeit miracles. Please, This is not to deny the possibility of genuine miracles from God today. That's not what I've just said. Rather, it is to say, don't be fooled, because, verse 9, Satan can perform miracles too. It's what we heard Jesus say in Matthew chapter 24, the first of the two readings that Tim read for us. False Christs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive the elect, if that were possible. So how can we be sure we're not deceived? Well, we need to be people who believe and love the word of God. Because those who will be deceived are, verse 10, those who refuse to love the truth. And, verse 12, those who have not believed the truth. Do you see, the mark of the true believer is not the one who believes the miracle, but the one who loves and believes the truth. Here's at least one reason why we spend so much time every week carefully looking at God's word, looking at the truth. Here's why we want everybody to be in a small group, to be uh, studying the Bible together, week in and week out, Bible open. Here's why we love the Bible to be open on a Sunday, why I plead with you to have it open so you can see the truth, not just take my word for it. This is the way that Satan will not be able to lead astray. And that's what he wants to do. So the end of verse 10, we must be people who love the truth. I love that. Love the truth. It's strong language, isn't it? It's a great thing. Do you love this word? Not just engage with it, not just read it from time to time. Love it because the truth will keep us safe. Like that little boat in the floodwaters. The truth will keep us connected to our God even when we're buffeted by the lawlessness of Satan. Knowing God's word, knowing his law will enable us to stand firm in this lawless, godless world. 
And that will help us to fix our eyes and our hearts on the personal and glorious and victorious coming of Christ when the powers of Satan and evil will be finally overcome, overthrown by the breath of his mouth and destroyed by the splendor of Jesus' coming. And so as I read this, I find myself saying virtually the last words in the Bible, Amen, come Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Well, as we pray, I'll pray for us the words um, that we'll read next week from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, words that the Apostle Paul prayed for the Thessalonians. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope encourage our hearts and strengthen us in every good deed and word. Amen.